But the title of my, of my message today is the God the Creator and We the Creatures. God the Creator and We the Creatures. Um, <clears throat> so we see in this uh, passage that we just read um, that God continues His uh, act of creation um, by creating uh, the, the sun and the moon, uh, all the living uh, things that were on the, on the earth. Um, so He continues uh, with His act of creation. And you know, this book, uh, the book of Genesis is foundational to our understanding of everything. Who really God is. And even from this chapter 1, we see the personality of God. That God actually speaks. God creates things. And um, He makes it happen with, with His command. Things, it, the uh, scripture says, it was so. It happened. As soon as He spoke it, the things came into existence. So we see that, we understand what kind of God that we serve. Um, and we talk, it also speaks of the origin of the universe, how the whole universe came into existence. Genesis talks about the nature of man, sin, and why we are the way we are. As human beings, or even the world in general, why things are the way they are. Genesis speaks to that. Right, so um, it's, uh, the Gen- book of Genesis sets the stage for everything that follows that without Genesis, nothing really makes sense. Without Genesis, when without the proper understanding of Genesis, all that follows from Exodus to Revelation, it really doesn't make much sense. And the um, book of Genesis is not written to satisfy the scientific curiosity or some kind of have that scientific proof. That's not the real reason for the purpose of the Genesis. And it isn't to really provide a comprehensive world history. Sometimes, oh, you know, this is from the beginning of the world, and so we may think that it may cover a lot of things. It does, but it's not really to provide and give us the complete picture or thorough understanding of world history. That is not the purpose of Genesis. Rather, it is to explain the beginnings of man, mankind, sin, and God's plan for God's plan of salvation. In fact, one of the key themes in the book of Genesis is divine election. Divine election. Because we see in chapter 1, it says, we begin with God creating the heavens and the earth, but then God chooses to deal with the earth, primarily. He doesn't really talk a whole lot about the heavens. The earth, compared to the heavens, is so small and insignificant, right, in terms of its size and the importance and all those things. And yet, God focuses on the earth, what he has created on the earth. It kind of like leaves the rest of the the heavens and the stars and all these things kind of out of the way. He focuses on the earth, divine election. And having chosen the earth, God now bypasses the angels, as we know from inference, that God created angels before the creation of the world. In Job it says that when the angels saw the creation of the world, they rejoiced with God. So we know that, uh, that actually angels were created. And yet, God bypasses the angels and elects to deal with men. 
And from Adam's sons, God chooses Seth. And from Seth's descendants, God chooses Noah. And it just goes down the, uh, goes down the line. And later, Abraham is chosen over all other people of the earth. And his son Isaac, not Ishmael, is the chosen seed. And between the two sons of Isaac, Esau and Esau was the first son, and Jacob was the second. Well, I mean, they came right after one another. But God chooses Jacob to be the recipient of his blessing. So when we see the, the whole story of the book of Genesis, that we see that God chooses certain people. And what does it tell us? That all, one thing is for sure, that all of this reveals God's sovereign and gracious election. Because not one of these people that were chosen really deserved to receive his blessing. What has really Abraham done to receive God's blessing? What has Jacob done that he should really be chosen to receive God's blessing over his brother? What has any of these people that were chosen to deserve the blessing of God? Nothing. Right? So from the get-go, we see grace. We see the grace of God in that God has chosen people who did not deserve to receive his blessings. And this theme of grace runs throughout the scriptures. So when we read the scripture, we must read it in the context of God's grace. The grace of God and divine election. The concept of grace, contrary to a lot of people's understanding, it not, did, not, did not start in the New Testament with Jesus coming. No. It's been there all along. From Genesis on, God's grace has been revealed to all of us. The purpose of Genesis, one of the key themes is that, that God has graciously has chosen people to receive his blessings. Um, and it has been, so, and then this theme that has been revealed in the book of Genesis, it's been just building and building, it's like crescendo, right? And then it's, it climaxes in the, 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 the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this same grace that we see from the book of Genesis on, from chapter 1, it is applied to, and it is for all Christians, including you and me. That it is only by grace of God that we have been chosen that we have been redeemed, that we have uh, come to know the blessings of God. It's not, we are not here, or we are not, we didn't become Christians, or we haven't become the children of God because our parents were Christians, or because we came, come to church uh, since we were young, or because we've attended the church faithfully. It's not any of those things that made us, or uh, merited our salvation. No, it was purely by the grace of God, apart from our own merit, apart from our own good works, that we have known God, that we have been invited to call Him Abba Father. So when we come to the Word of God, we have to approach it in that context. 
the context of grace, in the backdrop of God's grace and His uh, divine election, that we are to approach the Word of God from Genesis on, not only from the New Testament, but even from Old Testament, we see the grace of God and the divine election. That's how we have to read it. When we read about God calling us to obey Him, you know, when I was growing up, I used to think, oh, I just rolled my eyes. Oh, here we go again. Another call, uh, another command, another thing that I have to follow, even though I don't feel like it. Oh, God tells me this, so I have to do this. Ten commandments. Oh boy, I better not you know, mess up with these things. And so, you know, sometimes even when we, co- when we uh, understand the call to obedience, once again, it's not, God is not this like, slave master, trying to make our lives miserable. That God is not this cosmic killjoy, but God is telling us to follow Him so that we may come to know Him deeper through our obedience. That is the only way we can truly come to know God in a deeper way. Not so much through just kind of attending church service, but it is through our obedient life that we come to know God. Because through obedience and being in the will of God, it's really His gracious way of letting us come to know Him in a deeper way so that it will lead us to the path of righteousness so that we can be conformed into the image of God. So we have to understand, even when there's a command, instead of saying, oh, there's another thing to do, God makes me do these things, but say, wow, this is, I have to understand from that God is graciously allowing me to know the way of life, the way of Righteousness, the way He wants me to live. So without this clear understanding of grace, what's going to happen is legalism will take hold of us and the Christianity is going to easily turn into this joyless, burdensome religion devoid of the gospel. That's what's going to happen without understanding this proper understanding of grace. Whenever we come to the scripture, we will say, oh, here we go. God's going to make me, making me do this even though I don't feel like it. That's going to easily turn into legalism. Trying to earn God's favor by what we do. Trying to get, receive His acceptance through our actions. You see, we live under the covenant of grace. And we see that from Genesis 1. His grace and the divine election. So in this passage... And the, pretty much the book of uh, chapter one, uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 3, it tells us that God created everything, animate or inanimate. You know, Hebrew name for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim. It's Elohim, and um, it's a Hebrew word. And, and the name of God that links, uh, uh, links with, uh, links him, well, that, that's the name that links, God with uh, the act of creation. The basic root word of Elohim is El. The first word, El, E-L. Um, and it means mighty, strong, prominent. So when Moses wrote chapter 1, and he used English word God, he used in Hebrew, Elohim. And that word was associated with someone who is powerful, who is mighty, who is preeminent. So, we see that God is the creator, and we are the created. But, we all know that. So, but then, what does that mean? What, what are the implications of that? So God is 
God is the creator, we are his creation, so what? What does that really imply? So I have uh, three points here. The first point is that um, is we are accountable to God and not the other way around. We are accountable to God and not the other way around. You know, when George Lucas, uh, Pastor Jay loves the Star Wars, and, uh, but when George Lucas created Star Wars, uh, the franchise, he created it from, the, from his own imagination, right? He thought of this, he just cooked up the whole this galaxy far, far away, and then he just came up with the whole concept. Han Solo, uh, Darth Vader, whoever the character may be, didn't have a say, right? And he's creating this whole universe the way he did, because they didn't even exist before he created these characters. It's not like he was, they were there to consult him. Oh, well, you know, like, you know, George uh, and Mr. Lucas, you know, when you make the, you know, when you make a, create a universe, can you consult with me so I can kind of have a more prominent role or something like that? No. They didn't even exist unless he created these characters. As the architect of the galaxy far, far away, he created it however he wanted so when, say, Master Yoda vanished, right, he cannot say, hey, I, ha- I have an objection. Why? Right? Why did you do that? That's not fair. I want to have a more prominent role. You owe me an answer. Yoda, because his, his creation, he has no right to ask or say, you, George Lucas, owe me an explanation for your action. From Genesis 1, we see that God is sovereign. He will do what he will do. And he does not owe us an explanation. You see, when we say God is the creator and we are his creation, it means that God is God and we are not. We owe our existence to God. Therefore, we are the ones who are answerable to God, not the other way around. But what happens is usually somehow we turn that, flip that around, and somehow we are trying to hold God accountable for his actions, for the choices that he has, he makes. I sometimes, you know, get this line of questioning. Well, Pastor Wajin, this doesn't seem right. It doesn't, it's not fair. That why, why is Jacob chosen over his brother Esau? Right? Why Isaac? And not Ishmael. I feel bad for Ishmael. Why? Why? Why is God? Why is God doing that? So he would just ask questions about divine election. But you see, if we are going to question divine election, then we gotta also continue to ask questions. Then why did God choose to deal with men rather than the angels, rather than the animals or the trees? Why did God even choose to focus on men then? Is that fair? Why is the human the crown jewel of his creation? Why didn't God make, I don't know, gorilla? Or uh, you know, some kind of like a fly or maggot be the crown jewel of his creation? Why is a human being the crown jewel of his creation, made in his image? Why did God do that? We have to then start asking questions like that. If you say, why did God choose some person over the other, that we have to also then, by definition, we have to continue asking God 
these divine elections questioning in those states. Why did God choose earth rather than the heavens to focus on? Why this and not that? It's an ongoing thing. You see, our questioning about God's choosing will never end. Because once we start asking, asking why, 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 it's just in our human mind, because we are fallen, we would always want to know answers. We would want to demand answers from God for His actions. So the problem with our constant demand for answers and questioning divine election is the fact that that we then become the judge over his actions. When we start asking questions, it's, it's one thing to kind of ask and be curious about it, but if you constantly be living in it, constantly asking questions for his actions, why, why, why? It can easily turn into us, without even us maybe even realizing it, we then become the judge over God, over his actions. We then, become, we then decide what is fair, what is not fair, what is right, and what is not right about his actions. When, we see, when God chooses to do certain things, we say, well, that's not fair, that's not right. We make the judgment call of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in a very subtle way that we then place ourselves over God. Does that make sense? That when we start questioning about why, why God, why did you do that? Is that really the right thing to do, God? In a way that we become the judge over his actions. You know, this, uh, this year, uh, the U.S. Open in a women's uh, final was between Serena Williams and uh, this uh, Japanese lady, uh, Naomi Osaka, or something like that. Sorry. Because uh, well, as a tennis fan, I really admire uh, Serena Williams, her game, just her will to win, and just her grit, and all the things that she had to really overcome in her life, right? Even just coming from Compton area, and all the, all the obstacles that she had to overcome to make it, and she's the GOAT, right? She's the greatest of all time. There is no one that even comes close to her uh, just achievement, the, the domination that she has had over last, uh, you know, a couple decades, and I just love her game. But, so I was watching a little bit of the game, and in the first set, um, you know, so the judge... Uh, umpire, whatever you call it, he caught um, the coach, her coach, Serena's coach, like kind of coaching her, and uh, by rule, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, I don't know why, but in tennis game, the coaches are not supposed to coach. I don't know what they're there for, but, um, but they are to give them just like, you know, just like, uh, just, you know, clap and just cheer them up. They're not supposed to like give them specific instructions, but the TV actually caught uh, the coach kind of giving her instructions. It's a kind of very subtle thing, uh, but uh, the umpire just caught that and just gave warning. Not so much to Serena Williams, but because of the violation of the coach, like, she received a warning. And then uh, she wasn't too pleased with that. And so like, every two games, you have to just come and switch sides. So you have to come to, the, to where the, the umpire is. So she kind of just protested. You know, that's not fair. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. 
right? I'm not a cheater. I'm a mom now. So you are kind of just like saying that I'm a cheater, right? And so, um, but the, the umpire, from what I understand, uh, was that he was uh, giving her the, the warning because of the action of the, the coach that he wasn't supposed to. And so actually TV caught him doing that. And later, actually, he admitted that he was coaching, just like everybody else, but he just happened to be caught. Um, but then, and then she lost, uh, but the, uh, uh, the Naomi was really good. I didn't know how good, that was the first time seeing her play. It was really great, but um, the thing is, Serena didn't really let that go. Kept coming every two games when she came. It's like, you know, you're, and then um, one time she got really frustrated, not so much about that, but um, I guess it contributed to that, but uh, she like smashed her like racket. So that was the second warning, meaning she lost a point. And at that time, she kind of blew up and said, that is not fair. That's not fair. Why? And then, so she obviously went to the first warning um, about like the, the coaching. And then, so every like, change of the, the size, she would come and start complaining, complaining, and complaining. And say, no, you are a thief. You stole a point from me. And then she was going at it. And I was like, come on, Serena. Can you I know it's like, she's a competitor. And um, so at the heat of the moment, but the thing is, she would not let it go. And so finally, uh, when, he, when she said, uh, you are a thief uh, to, uh, to the umpire, um, he actually cost her a game. But that's the next, according to the rule. So I know like, uh, there are different interpretations, but anyways, um, you know, she said, uh, I mean, there's a, she has a point about the sexism being there, because if it was men, probably the umpire would kind of let, let him go, but because she was a woman, that he was more uptight and just more harsh. But the thing is, she kept at it for the whole match, and she eventually lost. The point is that she lived, uh, she constantly, she couldn't just get it out of her head, constantly questioning, questioning. And then the fact is, she was accusing him of being unfair, and that you are a thief, and then so it cost her basically the championship. She became the judge by questioning the action of the empire. She now wrote, just placed herself over, you are not being fair, you are, you did this, you are a thief. And that's the things that we do. And so when I was watching that, I sometimes felt like, man, sometimes that's what we do. We become the judge over God's action. And we demand an answer from God. God, why did you do that? That's not fair. That's not right. God, why did you do that? If you knew that Adam and Eve would fall, why did you set them up? That's not fair. That's not right. Why do you allow suffering in this world? If you are a good God, why? Why do you allow these things to happen? Why do you allow people to suffer like this? Why do you choose some people and not the others? That's not right. That's just not fair. In doing so, it becomes more than an intellectual curiosity for us. What we are doing is that then we become this self-appointed judge over God. I want an answer, God. You are accountable. You owe me an explanation. You are accountable to me. In essence, we are actually playing God if we keep going down that road, if we go there. And also another problem of questioning God's choices is that our sense of what is right, what is fair, what is wrong, what is not fair, 
our sense of all that is deeply flawed. You see? And it's wildly inconsistent at best. Sin in us has really corrupted and distorted our moral compass. If you have a if you have a broken compass, would you use it to navigate uh, your ship out in the sea? Of course not, because it's broken. It's not working. It's not working properly. But you see, that's what we do when it comes to our relation to God. We still try to use our broken moral compass to decide what is fair and what is not fair, what is right and what is not right. So we have to be very careful about asking questions. With our depraved mind and subjectivity, we are not in a position to judge whether God's election is fair or not. It's like, you know, can you imagine a drug addict trying to run a country when he's constantly high, can you think he can really make a, a reasonable, sound judgment? Of course not. But that's what we try to do with God. What makes us think that we can judge God's sovereign choice? We can't even agree among ourselves what is fair and what is not fair. Genesis 1 tells us that God created us. It means that we are accountable to God, not the other way around. All-wise, almighty God isn't accountable to us. We are to Him. The fact that we try to make God accountable to us speaks to our fallenness because it shows that we want to be like God. The very temptation that Adam and Eve fell into. So when we say God is the Creator and we are His creation, it means that we are accountable. We owe our existence to God and we are accountable to Him not the other way around. And the second point is God created us uh, for His purpose, not ours. God created us for His purpose, not for our purpose. You know, the fact that God created us means that it is for His purpose that we are created. We are not a cosmic accident. We're not a product of this natural evolutionary process. If there were no God and everything came into existence by chance, Big Bang or the sound wave, what have you, whatever the theory that's out there, that there isn't really any purpose, right? It was just, we just came into existence by chance. So there, it means there is no meaning behind our existence. If we came into uh, to being by random chance, what meaning is really there for us? Why do we even exist? But God, Elohim, created us for His purpose. And that gives us meaning of our existence. That gives us the purpose of our lives. One time I saw a uh, really a sad interview. Uh, there was this um, serial killer waiting on death row was going to be executed any time, and had an uh, interview. And uh, I don't remember much about the interview, but then there was one part that really just hit me hard, and he said, he really meant it, and he said, you know what, after all those things, um, he said, you know, I'd rather just, I want to die, because I have no purpose in my life. I don't know why I'm alive. Right? And he really meant it. And it was so sad to hear that. They, 
he really didn't know why he was alive. What was the point of his, what meaning his existence really had in this world. And said, yeah, I'd rather die because I have no purpose in life. You know, before I understood the gospel in my early teenage years, I used to look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, Wujin, why are you you here, right? Why do you exist? What for? What is your purpose? And I really couldn't honestly answer that. I mean, I went to school because my parents expected me to. Why did I study? It's because everybody was doing it. I was just kind of flowing with the, uh, going with the flow. I mean, basically I had a mom mentality. I just did things because there was an expectation from other people. And I wanted to please them. But you see, that, that cannot really be the purpose or the meaning of my life. I, I was searching and I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was doing all these things. Just to make money? Then what? How is that going to, maybe it will just buy me temporary happiness, but I know it doesn't last. Is that really the meaning of my life? Is that the purpose of my life? When God formed us in our mother's womb, it means that he had every intention to bring us into this world for his purpose. He didn't create us because he got bored or just to add another toy, right? The living toy. Nothing is a waste in God's economy and no one is an accident in His created world. God, when God created every one of us, there was a purpose. You are not here by accident. You are here for a purpose. Every one of us still has a purpose from God. And it is a tragedy that so many people live their lives without purpose. All their lives, they try to find meaning of their lives. They try so hard. They try to find meaning through money, relationships, approval, praise from people, what have you. People look everywhere to find meaning of their lives. Only to realize those things will not give them true meaning and the purpose of their lives. And yet, they're searching so hard. They're working so hard. And yet, they cannot find the ultimate answer apart from Christ. Until you find the purpose of your life in Christ, you are living a life. You're living a tragic life. You know, one of the the most tragic characters in the Bible for me is Samson. You know, he was called by God to be a judge, to rule over Israel. And this is time before the kings were established in Israel. So he was supposed to judge and rule the nation, uh, rule Israel according to God's word. But we know the story of Samson and Delilah, right? The sad part is not the fact that, that he got tricked into telling her the source of his strength and that his, guy, his eyes getting gouged out and dying at the end, end uh, with the enemies. That's not the tragic part of the story of Samson. The tragedy is that he never fully grasped the purpose of God in his life. The calling that God has given him, he never fully understood or really took it seriously. He tried to just kind of kind of go with the flow, 
take life easy. He didn't understand the purpose that God has given him. Fully understand. I really pray for every one of us here that you would find the purpose of God. The fact that we are still alive and breathing in and out even at this moment is because God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose. His purpose. And we are created for His purpose, not our purpose. So many of us try to live our lives, find meaning and purpose. Our purpose. No. When the scripture says God is the creator and we are his creation, it means that we are created for his purpose. Apart from it, you, we will not find any meaning and purpose. And the last point is God created us for a good purpose. When we say God is the creator God, that we are his creation, it means that God created us for a good purpose. You know, God, when God saw that, uh, when God saw what he has created, Genesis tells us in chapter 1 that it was good, and this phrase, it was good, appears seven times in chapter 1. You know, PJ last week talked about how just it, it being, when it is good, it's in the sense of, uh, it's of just being really deeply satisfied, the quality of his work, how, how good it was, how satisfying it was, and appreciating the work. And this uh, Hebrew word, when it's used here, is related closely to the mind of God. In other words, the word good, I mean, it's used in so many broad ways, just as in Hebrew as well as in English word. Here it implies moral goodness. It was morally, also has a moral component to it. God is preeminently the one who is good, and his goodness is reflected in his creation, in his works. So when God created us, and all his creation reflects and declares his goodness, it means that his purpose for giving us life is good. His purpose he created us for his purpose, and his purpose is good. There is no hidden agenda or ulterior motive for creating us. He's no Frankenstein that we should be fearful of. He created us for a good purpose. What is this good purpose? You know, the very first question of the Westminster Catechism says, What is the chief end of What is our ultimate purpose? What is our ultimate end in life? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are made for the purpose of glorifying and enjoying God forever. It is a good purpose because God is good. Even through our pain and sorrow in life, in the end, God's good purpose will prevail. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God created us for a good purpose. God created us for His purpose. And we are accountable to God, not the other way around. And so as we you know, go through uh, Genesis, you know, just the fact that we acknowledge God, that He is our Creator, 
it means we are, we owe our existence and we are accountable to God, not the other way around. And we are created because God is our creator. He created us for a purpose. And that cre- uh, the purpose is good. So may that really, uh, may we really understand that and move forward in our um, you know, life, knowing that this is who God is to us. That God not only redeemed us, but God created us. He, has, he knows us. He even knows the number of hair in our head. He knows everything about us. And we can still trust God because God is good. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. Just take a, a moment to come before Him. To acknowledge that He is God. Um, and that means that we are accountable to God. It means that He created us for His purpose, not our purpose. That our life is not about fulfilling our own goals and agenda, but for His purpose. And His purpose is good. When God created us, it was good. The world may tell us, try to put, uh, shame us, try to put a guilt trip on us, thinking, saying that we are not good enough. But God says, it was good. When God created you and me, God said, it was good. It is good. So as we um, just spend a moment here, let's pray that our hearts will be fully surrendered to Him. If you do not really know the purpose of God, more than any other wrestling that you would do in your prayers, more than just, God, who should I marry? Or God, what kind of job should I get? God, what kind of uh, things should I do? Um, in the midst of all these uh, more practical questions, the one question that I think we have to really wrestle with and to really know for sure is, God, what is your purpose for me? Why did you create me? Why did you put me on this earth? That has to be clearly answered in our lives. So if you, um, you know, if you'd like to receive prayers, um, you know, there's no shame or anything like that. You know, Pastor Jay is standing in the back um, along with Julie. To really pray. Pray for you. Pray with you. Um, so let's, um, if you'd like to receive prayers, to receive encouragements and guidance, you just uh, please, you can just go to the back. Uh, and for the rest of us, let's uh, just go before the Lord and pray, um, acknowledging that God is the creator, what that really implies, what that really means to us. So let's go before the Lord and pray.